I, it was great to be here with the exception of now I understand it's audio only, no reason to have shaved or showered. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, that's kind of a, a kicker, but, you know, the rest of it was great. Yeah. You could restore it all. And rescue me from You had my fallen You How Hi, and welcome to Backup Central's Restore It All podcast. I'm your host, W. Curtis Preston, a.k.a. Mr. Backup. And I have with me my April Fool's advisor, Prasanna Maliante. How's it going, Prasanna? I'm good, Curtis. How are you doing? It's your it's your favorite day of the year. Yeah, I it's my fa- my favorite day followed by my se- or my my second favorite day followed by my favorite day. The you know the World Backup Day was yesterday. That's when we're recording this episode. That, who knows when it will actually broadcast? But we're recording this on April first. You uh, had a. a semi-prominent role in my blog post that I posted today about... Um... I did read it. Thank you for <laughs> quoting me. Or, And yes, I did not take comments from other people trying to reach me. <laughs> but I'm glad to see that Backup Central has now been acquired by V. Yeah, apparently. Yeah, according to... <laughs> What's really funny is the people... You know, I, I enjoy both the, the uh, that was funny, and the people who actually completely fell for it. They just saw the headline, which was Backup Central acquired by Veeam. Uh, and then they just were like, they, they sent me like, congratulations. It's like, um, did you read the post? Um, because... <laughs> You know, yeah, if, make if sure you, you read till the very end. Yeah, if you're <laughs> as you read the post, it just gets sort of sillier and sillier, uh, especially once I start quoting uh, Druva's CMO. Like, hopefully, by the time you get to that point, you're like, "Oh, this is this this can't possibly be real." But uh, <laughs> but it was it was fun, and um, I love having fun. I know you it's know one that. of your pleasures that you look forward to every year. It does. It, it, yeah, it, it definitely, and and. Um, once we introduce our guest, I'm going to tell an old April first or April Fool story. Uh, but it's very <laughs> apropos that we would have this April Fool's joke that was about Veeam acquiring, which it didn't actually happen. In case anybody's curious, it didn't actually happen. But uh, it was a joke anyway uh, about Veeam acquiring uh, Backup Central because. I have this longtime friend that has been in the industry. Once again, I love to mention when people have been in the industry longer than me. He, he was at IBM for many years, and then he was at Gartner for many years. And he is now the Vice President of Enterprise Strategy at Veeam. Welcome to the podcast, Dave Russell. Hey, great to be here with you, Curtis and Prasanna. Great so to have you on the show. I think Curtis Curtis was super excited about this episode, especially once he had his blog post written. <laughs> I really, I, I really wanted to have you on the day. You know, it, it actually that's actually the fact that I knew we were recording this episode today is kind of how ultimately I decided to use Veeam as the fictional uh, acquirer of Backup Central today because I knew you were coming on. Yeah, and it, this was great because it gave me and my boss a chance to talk because <laughs> I didn't notice that you had put that up there, but my boss that did. That's so funny. Put it on an internal Teams chat. And <laughs> so, you know, it's always good to have one more reason to go talk to your your boss just to see what's going on and what'd you do today? Yeah, so what? Uh, did, did, how, how did that come to your attention? Yeah, well, I naturally corrected immediately and said, 
I think really Druva and Veeam ought to unite forces with Backup Central and get into the hardware business <laughs> because after decades of software, I think it's really time to try a new thing. And I think if we've learned anything in recent times, it's that this software thing's probably not going to pan out. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just a trend. Just, just, a trend. For, just for the listeners, this is still April 1st. This right? is still just April 1st. Clear. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because this will not be April 1st by the time you hear it. Uh, right. But right now in our world, it is still April 1st. Yeah. I, I was telling Persona, uh, by the way, I'll throw out our, our usual disclaimer that uh, Persona and I do work for Druva. This is not a Druva podcast. The opinions that you hear are ours. And also, if you are interested, you know, if you if you live in the backup world uh, or or related worlds like security, data protection, uh, archive, long term storage, uh, you know, any of those things, and you want to come and talk to us, uh, we'd love to have you on. Uh, just send an email to wcurtispreston at gmail dot com, and uh, also. Please rate this podcast at ratethispodcast.com slash restore. So, uh, yeah, Dave, I was telling Prasanna <clears throat> this, uh, my first sort of electronic April Fool's joke a hundred years ago when I, I had my first uh, job. At, it was a, at a small uh, company called Digital Systems, and they had a Unix-based system. And I got in early on April 1st and set up um, the my April Fool's joke, which was the first person who logged in after me got a simulated crash of our main server, and then um, and then uh, and then it cleaned up all evidence of that, uh, you know that you know the the hack, and then and it just went away. And um, the the person who logged in, let's just say they did not think it was funny, and neither did anybody else other than me. And, um, and so everybody was like, so who did that? And I was like, yeah, that's really mean. (laughs) Who would have done that? It's beyond Uh, the statute of limitations. I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah, definitely. At this point, (laughs) the April Fool's statute of limitations, that was 20 um, years ago. Um, (laughs) that would have been in, in 1993. Um, so I I think I'm safe, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, but I do. I, Humor is a, such a selective thing. It is. Um, yes. And um, yeah. But um, so anyway, so we wanted to have you on. So so let's just let's just talk a little bit about you first. You you have been in the space for a while and you you and I, I think yeah. you and I might be the two most tape positive people we are definitely the most tape positive people working at very not tape companies would you would you agree with that <laughs> yeah it's true i mean i i really do consider myself a tape proponent yeah and in part it's just because i think people get over weighted towards bashing on tape right they blame tape for many many things and as you've i think very evenly pointed out past technologies you know, there were real problems. The, the state of the art was very different. However, we are, to your point, talking about 20, 25-year-old statements, right. certainly not something that's, you know, recent times, in other words. So to your point about statute of limitations, I kind of feel like, okay, get off the tape sucks bandwagon. If you don't like a technology right. for, for a variety of reasons, that's fine. I will tell you, I'm now, I'm 100% flash or solid state right. of some kind. At home. In, in my environment, for well, I have one HDD at home, 
yeah, yeah. I have one eight terabyte HDD. Everything else is flash. However, I still see why people might choose to use tape. There's still good reasons. So yeah. Sometimes I feel like just, just we need to stick up for that technology. Yeah, just use it for the appropriate reasons. Don't expect it to cover everything, but there are certain right. good use cases where tape makes sense. Yeah, running a running yeah. a database on an LTFS tape probably not a good <laughs> um, not a good use of that technology. Right. Not the best. It use, would work. Yeah, it would totally work. I, well, I don't know. I don't know well, what that would be like. It would be a really interesting uh, experience to see what it would be like to do that. But I, I think I, I think tape had it, it sort of had a, a few. There were I, to me tape had three sort of phases. There was the phase when I first started playing with tape or using tape for for professional reasons. There were de I definitely had reliability issues with just the physical mechanisms themselves. And I know you have some three B two experience. I my experience was different than yours. We couldn't take a tape out of one three B two and put it into a different three B two and have it have it work. I, I had those issues. That was like the first sort of phase. And then I think there was I think tape had a real heyday for a brief period of time where the where the where the mechanism was reliable and the speed and everything was all was all right. I think what happened then as as tape got faster and faster, it became really fundamentally incompatible with backup, the thing that it was originally designed for, right? So now you've got this tape that wants to go a thousand, you know, at this point, we've got tapes that, that go to a terabyte a second. And um, it, and, and you still have a, a, an incremental backup that wants to run much, much slower than that. So it's, it's just fundamentally incompatible, right? Does, does, that, does that match what you're, what you've seen? Yeah. And, you know, my 3B2 usage was like so trivial, meaning at the time I was in a university lab mm -hmm. as a grad student and it was an undergraduate lab that AT&T had funded, meaning they gave like 100 PCs, probably like 286 Pentiums yeah. at that time. Yeah. They gave us three 3B2s. Mm. We didn't know what to do with the other two. So we unpacked them and put them on the counter and as far as I know, at least during the year or both semesters I was there, they just sat there. We never, we never turned them on. Wow. That's just, that's <laughs> just maybe sad. someone turned them on, but the, and so we only had the one three B two we used as a file print server. And just to tell you how poor of a backup practice we were as you know grad students, we just we had two tapes to back up everything, right? And we did grandfather, father, son rotation, but we just put the two stacks of or three stacks rather of two tapes right next to each other, <laughs> right in front of the that one powered Bad on three B two. Bad admin. And then we would we'd rotate them, you know, right to left. Okay, now you go to the back on the right side. So we didn't ever experience trying to take that to another machine. Right. And so and then by the time I really started using tape, I was you know did an internship at IBM over the summer. My wife was already there working on mainframe backups. So I went to go work for on another mainframe project, meaning she was on an operating system called MVS, now called ZOS. I was on an uh, operating system doing backup on called VM, virtual machine, now ZVM. And, you know, I was lamenting with both of you. I was listening to your podcast yesterday as I was driving and I drove by the old STK site and it- Because you're, you're in Colorado. I'm now in Colorado. Right, right. Yeah. Moved over the pandemic from Arizona because I was in Tucson, Arizona, IBM tape land, right? Right. And worked at IBM there. And it dawned on me after driving by STK. Yeah. Well, 
So I barely used those 3B2 tapes other than to put them in harm's way. And from the point that I actually was using tape in my profession, it was enterprise class, IBM, mainframe tape, SEs in there, CEs in there. Super expensive tape drives as well. So it was, you know, like going to the Ferrari factory and, you know, I test drive the cars. They seem nice. (laughs) (laughs) So with your 3B2, (laughs) did you ever have to do a restore? Because I'm wondering if that's what really sours people's perception of tape. Sure. If they ever have to do a restore. (laughs) Well, uh, I think you nailed it, Prasan, on so many levels. I mean, you probably could say that's still true today. That's when you discover how much you like or dislike your backup solution is at when you have to use it in anger, to use our British friend saying, because not only are you going to experience the problems that tape used to have, but any issue like, uh oh, I forgot to include that directory, you know, <laughs> it shows up. It, yep. Yeah. It shows up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So at, at this thing, I, I, I guess I've spent, so I, I, um, as I, I don't know if you're aware that I, I've just completed writing my next book. Did you know that? I don't know if I yeah, told you that. I, I knew you were working. I didn't know you completed it. Yeah. Good so job. it's, it's, it's at this point, I, I have to do the, the final, I think the QC, I think I have to do the QC one and QC two, the, the final, like once it gets um, paginated and all that, I have to do those edits where, where I just fix little things here and there. But other than that, it's, it, it is written. When I wrote in there, when I wrote on tape, my main thing, and it's just been this way for a long time has been just to understand how tape works, right? And understand what it's good at, what it's not good at. And 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 that your your problem with tape probably wasn't the tape. It was how you were using it, right? That you were you were trying to get it to go, you know, 10 megabytes per second and it's a it's a 500 you know gigabyte a second tape drive. Uh, that's been my and also just that you know, and again, you and I both work at companies that are that are, although you, you do more tape than we do, we do zero tape. Uh, Veeam actually has tape out support, uh, which I, I remember advocating for back, back, in a, back a million years ago. But, um, that when I, when I wrote the book, I just, it's like, look, tape is actually really good at holding on to data, right? Don't think that about tape. Also don't think that tape is slow. Tape is neither slow nor unreliable, but it can be both if you use it improperly, right? Well, yeah. Yeah. And I think it's similar to if today you took Object Store and said, I'm going to use it for a transactional workload with billions of transactions a second. Object right. Store isn't necessarily intended for that use case. There are better media for that. Tape right. is kind of the same way, right? Use it for the appropriate. Yeah. And I want to double click on what you said. You just reminded me of something that I'd forgotten about, Curtis, which is meaning the reliability. Because I used to say when I was an analyst, you know, people would say, we want to get off tape, blah, blah, blah. And then I would talk to them two years later and they'd say, yeah, we're still thinking about getting off tape. And, you know, it was a cost issue to go buy all discs. We're talking like the mid, you know, 2000s, 2005 to go all tape to all disc. If you had any kind of size was certainly expensive. But two quick stories, one from the past to your point of reliability, you probably remember the, the space shuttle challenger accident at that time, I was in undergrad, and at that time, I was an aerospace engineer student, and class was canceled that day because our professor was the professor of Dick Scobie, the commander on that shuttle, and he just said, guys and gals, I can't talk today. You know, This is too intense. Fast forward a couple years later, 
And I worked with the chemical engineer from IBM tape that actually was the one that the Marines armed, by the way, came to IBM Tucson with, with the tapes from the Challenger that they had recovered from the bottom of the ocean, saltwater, obviously huge depths and being a PhD in chemistry, chemical engineering, he got the data off that proved that there was an O-ring issue. So I think of that story every now and then, obviously enterprise class, obviously you have a PhD at it, but if the media was that unreliable, even a PhD wouldn't be able to right, get your data right, yeah. is, is you know one key point there. Yeah, it's an interesting, uh, I, uh, I was on a ski vacation with my family in, I think it was Breckenridge, Colorado when that, when the challenger happened. So I just remember skiing was done for the day. I just remember like coming in and we all just sat around the TV and watched that. Um, I have, a, I have a, another odd, you, you have that connection to the challenger disaster. I, mine, I, this is going to sound really bizarre, but I had a transmission shop that, um, I ended up suing because they replaced my transmission, but not my transmission oil. And, um, I, obviously it then failed and I sued them in small claims court. And oddly enough, I got a local, uh, transmission expert. If you can imagine this, me in small claims court with another guy from another transmission shop who agreed to testify as an expert in this, in this stupid small claims, uh, case, (laughs) that guy turned out to be one of the people who diagnosed the O-ring problem. So I learned, I learned that about him as, as this was all happening is that he was, he, he had participated in, because there's also like O-rings and transmissions and that it's part of the, right. and so he was on the team that helped to diagnose uh, the, Crazy. the O-ring uh, problem, which is, yeah. So, so did you know this about Curtis Prasada that he was willing to spend $50,000 on an expert witness because he's so competitive to win that $750 small claims yeah, court no, case. I'm, I'm not surprised. Okay. For the record, yeah, I did not pay the expert witness. That's the most amazing part of that story is that I didn't have to pay that. He was, he was so incensed by the fact that, that they would lie. Right. I stood right there when they took off the plug and I watched basically a couple of drips of oil come out of the transmission and I was like, mm. son of a bitch. I mean, today I would, today I would, uh, I would have filmed it on my, on my smartphone yeah. Yeah, back right. then. Uh, yeah. Anyway, we digress. Uh, so you've been at Veeam now for how long? Almost three years. So five, nine, which would be May 9th. That's interesting because you went to Veeam, uh, then that means about six months after right I after went to Druva. Curtis. Yeah. 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 And I remember that being a big deal that Dave Russell, <sighs> the Dave Russell had gone to Veeam. Oh. Um, I mean, you have a pretty, you have a pretty big name in the industry, you know? No. no. Uh, oh, modest, modest. I'm no Mr. Backup. I'm just Backup Dave. Yeah. You're back, that is, that's your Twitter handle, I'm right? I'm the guy. Backup Dave gets. Yeah, backup Dave is the guy that gets Mr. Backup's coffee. See, like, I'm <laughs> yeah. the one that goes changes the tape, I don't know about tape that. cleaning cartridge. We can sit in. here That's and have our idea. our mutual admiration society. But wh- what was that? What was that like? Uh, how has it been for you moving from? So you like me? It, well, you worked at you worked at IBM for a while. Well, for a while, 
Uh, so this isn't yeah. your first vendor, but you were yeah, an analyst for a long time, right. uh, like 15 years, 12 years. How long was it? Yeah. Um, 15 plus at IBM and almost 13 as a Gartner analyst. Okay. And so you, you were outside of the vendor space for a while and then you come into yeah. the vendor space. I was never in the vendor space. I never worked for a, for a company that produced a product like that. And then this was my first one. So I had a very you know, an interesting experience finally seeing how the sausage is made. How, how was it for you, you know, to move into that, into that space? You know, in, in a weird way, it was eerily familiar. The eerie part was that I expected it to be more like the vendor type of role that I was used to in the past, meaning years ago at IBM, but I ended up doing probably as much analyst like stuff as ever before. So my colleague, Jason Buffington, also former analyst from Enterprise Strategy Group or ESG, he and I, and another one of our associates, we now have half a dozen research projects in flight. And there will be four of the top five largest surveys ever done, meaning the end mm -hmm. or the global responses are really, really high. Right. So it feels like an analyst job or sometimes what I do is I talk to customers and I'm really frank with them. You know, you don't have to be, you know, around long to understand that just trying to get by with smoke and mirrors is going to come back to bite you. So, for example, Persona says, hey, we love DB2 on AIX and we're looking for a new backup solution. I would tell you, don't look at the product or the company, you know, that I come from because we major in certain things and minor in certain things. What you just described there, we minor in, go somewhere else. And I can tell you who can do that well. <laughs> so it feels almost analyst-like, but it's probably, you know, the the culture shift and all that, no big deal. And I think at least from the surveys you were talking about, from a product perspective, right, you want to figure out what are customers trying to do? What are the things that are valuable to them? Because that is the things you should be focused on building to a certain extent, depending on how many customers, et cetera, are doing that, just so you can because without that customer input, you might build something and no one will use it, <laughs> right? Which is like You're the worst so thing. You're so spot on. So it is absolutely the worst. You know who's you know who are the two worst people on the planet to design a backup system? Me and Curtis. <laughs> now, who are two good people to? Add, and I wrote backup code. My wife wrote even more backup code than I did. But I, we, Curtis and I would be really good to comment on, oh, this is what you're considering and blah, 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 blah. But in terms of like, let's go whiteboard it. <laughs> so to your point, Prasanna, you're like, no, go ask the rest of the world what they would like. Go ask your target. It would be kind of like, are you designing this automobile for an automotive engineer who's right. an ace mechanic? Right. Are you designing this for soccer mom that this better be reliable and darn safe? Well, for the record, uh, Dave, I designed or I provided input to the design of what became Avamar's GUI. <laughs> so that's, that is literally oh, the only okay. thing that I've actually done <laughs> where I've actually been on the design end. And what, what I did was I was like, look, I've looked at all of these different backup GUIs. Here's, here are the things that I would put into a backup GUI. Um, I, you know, so I, I that's the only time I've actually designed <laughs> anything. Uh, but I, but I think you're absolutely right. You know, what you really want to do is you want to talk to the people that are actively using the product. One question I did have though, Dave, and I'm not sure Curtis, if you want to take this a different direction is, I know we talked earlier uh, at the pre-meeting about sort of now that Veeam is sort of acquired and it's part of a private equity, sort of how is that going? I know there's a perception that things may not be the best, 
uh, once things go through private equity, sometimes it's around cost cutting and sort of churning yeah. money for the PE firm. Um, how has things changed or how are things different since that happened at Veeam? If you're comfortable talking about it, of course. For sure, for sure. You know, because I think the most important thing to clarify is Insight Partners became a venture capitalist many years ago versus private equity. And we've all heard the horror stories of private equity, like a chop shop is what they're oftentimes right. known as, right? We're going to cut costs. We're going to, you know, try to milk things as best we can, which might mean raising maintenance, blah, blah, blah. So that's not this group's model. You know, they're as a venture capitalist, they want a return on investment. And so, you know, what that means is, and I don't know, you know, if every VC or firm operates this way, but back, not just speaking about insight, but when I was on the Gartner analyst side, what the VCs would tell me is we need one out of 20 to be a home run. Mm. And within that set of 20, we need kind of three to four, ideally five to do pretty well. Right. Which is another way of saying like, okay, three quarters of these can go bust because that's typically what happens. But you hope, you know, it's, it's kind of like the record company. We, we hope Mariah Carey sells 2 million records because we've got Dave and Curtis and they're not going to sell very many records. Yeah. So if we smooth this out between the two of them. So the first thing that I think is good to just, you know, kind of clarify is it was a VC shop that actually is investing. The other thing I think is important to understand that I don't, I feel like many people may have missed these couple of nuances is, you know, why? Like, why would two individuals want to go sell? They I mean, trust me, they don't need the money. So it's not, it's not, it's not a cash flow problem because that's a valid reason. Okay, we need more money to expand or something like that. Instead, the thought was, okay, let's make this more of a U.S.-based versus the implication of being foreign-owned. And the reason I say implication, quick sidebar there is one of the co-founders, they're both from, were born in Russia. They've both now lived outside of Russia more than they've lived in Russia. My big joke is the one co-founder, basically one co-founder focuses on marketing and sales. The other co-founder focuses on whiteboarding and writing code. Mm -hmm. And when for the marketing one, whenever I run something like, hey, I'm thinking of a campaign and here are the words and he starts correcting my English. <laughs> <laughs> so it starts, I, I, it's the point where I say, look, Ratmir, I'll trust you grammatically on this more than I'll trust me. I mean, I may be 56 years old, but <laughs> you're better at this language than I am. So there's that aspect. So some of this was around optics. Yeah. Some of this was around go and grow. I will give, here might be the bomb. That, and so if I get fired, not only because I gave a quote for Veeam acquiring uh, Backup Central, but because I let this slip, I'm surprised no one asked this. How come the price was so low? Mm -hmm. mm. And I'm also surprised very simply someone didn't say, huh, it's not $5 billion because exactly 13 months earlier, there was $500 million or half a billion right. that Insight also did too. So ergo, that's $5.5 billion. But I still say, why didn't anyone say, how come the price is too low? Mm. Because I would have said, you know, one person's opinion, and obviously something's only worth what another entity's were willing to pay for it. But I would have handicapped seven, maybe seven and a quarter billion. And my belief to the answer to that question is, well, to get that extra couple of billion, then getting into even higher growth mode, 
getting this, any kind of concern or perception issue about foreign ownership, getting that taken care of and off the table would then allow the kind of return and the investment that basically an insight is looking for. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know. Did you listen to our episodes on that topic? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I did. And I thought the gentleman was pretty sharp. Yeah, he's a pretty sharp guy. And I, I, honestly, I can't even remember what we said. Um, you know, that was so long ago. Do you realize, by the way, we have uh, we have now recorded our 100th episode? Yeah. yeah. I, well, now I do. I mean, I... I had to go read my own quote, and in there, it uh, did mention your 100th <laughs> episode. Right. In there. Yeah, for the record, uh, I made up the quote from Dave on the, in the uh, in the uh, Backup Central acquired by Veeam story. I never um, remember what I say. I probably did. Say yeah, that. I think you said. I I just said that you said it was amazing. That's all. Um, I think what you're saying is that they're more of a VC company than a PE company, even though they are technically. Absolutely. I would just say technically both. Because the perception definitely was that. And and I think what I remember the guy said, Prasanna, do you remember that he basically said like he wasn't sure of this particular PE company's yeah. right. Right, uh, a track record? And it what you're saying what it sounds like you're saying is that they're that they did not have that desire to just, you know, uh, uh you know, I don't know if, I don't know what the what I was gonna say like milk the golden cow, but that mixes metaphors. <laughs> Right. But, but no, your point is spot on. No, that it was, it's about growth. I mean, I view it as it's about getting that missing 2 billion, right? So it's, it's about fueling higher growth into either more markets or go deeply or more deeply in the markets you already serve. Right. And so it's investing in the business in order to be able to make that happen because that's not just going to happen magically overnight. Right. Right. So to your initial question, Prasanya, what, what's it been like? Honestly, it hasn't been any different at all. Now, the part of that could be because of pandemic. You know, that actually, you know, we were talking beforehand. You you hate to say, gosh, our companies are doing well in, in this global crisis. But, you know, sometimes I sometimes joke, you have to take the good with the bad sometimes. And here's a rare case where there's some good. I mean, the, the fact is people are wanting to back up. People do like software in this circumstance. I mean, there were periods of time when people couldn't get into the data center, right? right? You can't go rack and stack new gear or supply chain was an issue to where Supermicro maybe can't get you the kit to put your bezel on. So you're compromising what you can do. So the, the net net though is that, no, it's been an investment engine and vehicle. And what's interesting, you know, you were talking about acquisitions. I'll come back to this. Part of the thing that feels kind of analysty is Insight said, so-and-so came to us and want to know if they'd be a good fit for you guys. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure Drew has seen that too. I mean, any company that has some success, people come out of the woodwork saying, you know what you need? My product yeah. <laughs> or, or my company. Right. And so I get the to-do to go, you know, research, would that be a fit or not? And, you know, usually the answer is absolutely not. And some of them are very interesting. Now, I didn't get this one, but my colleague who runs our, we call it strategic initiatives, but think of it as business development. He got one from a zoo located in New York saying, I'm sure you would agree with me that now's the time for Veeam to be considering zoology. Interesting. And that, that one didn't go through, obviously, <laughs> but uh, that one was a little bit of a reach, yeah. shall we say? Yeah. Yeah, so I'm curious. So I've watched Veeam uh, always externally. I've never worked for Veeam, but I've always I've watched Veeam go 
I remember having a conversation at one point, for example, where I remember a representative of um, Veeam saying, physical machines over my dead body, right? Um, right. So there, there was a time where Veeam was 100%, not just focused, but 100% virtualization, right? And then I think, I think what they realized is sometimes the physical machines that you need to back up are actually virtual machines, just not on platforms that you uh, support. So I, I think that's what maybe uh, pushed him towards a regular backup client. What, what what else have you seen them add over the years, uh, both both externally and and once you what what have you seen them add to that that virtualization focus? Yeah, and you know there are many that still openly laugh about that. You know, we'll never do agents, right? And they'll you know in public they'll say you know well we said that and we did agents, right? And the part of the rationale was okay, not the world's not going entirely VMware. And not just that, and even if you add up other hypervisors, you know, Hyper-V, et cetera, there's still physical or good reasons for physical. On, in multiple directions, meaning going down to endpoints, meaning laptops, or going up to physical servers, like we, we want to run SQL Server you know, on bare metal on Windows. And some of the reasons for doing that have changed over time, but there's still pockets out there. Now, when there's pockets of AIX and Solaris, we've got answers for that. But if that's truly, if you're like a 200 AIX box shop, we're definitely not going to fit in that. But I think what Veeam started to realize is there always are going to be a lot of Windows and Linux physical machines. And so that sweet spot is, is in the company's best interest. And then along came along various cloud opportunities, whether it's O365 or Azure, AWS, GCP. Uh, and we're looking you know, at other SaaS, as everyone always is, as well. So rounding out that portfolio, uh, physical tape came in. At one point, the thought was maybe we don't need tape now, actively support LTO 3 and above for, for many years. And version 11 just came out about a month ago of the primary Veeam product, Veeam Backup and Replication. And there's still new tape things coming out, physical tape, not just virtual tape, physical tape improvements being made in there. And it's it goes back to market. It goes back to really, Prasan, I think you kind of tipped it off. Well, if this is what the public wants, if, if this is the current data center landscape. Yeah. And I think also you had mentioned a point earlier, Dave, about sort of the major versus the minor features that are supported, right? And in my mind, having always been on the vendor side in a competitive uh environment, it's always been that Veeam is VMware first. And I know that that has changed over time, right? Everyone would always compare, okay, if you ever want to get compete in the VMware space, Veeam is your number one competitor, right? And like you're saying, as Veeam is slowly expanding out, because you have to support some of those other use cases and workloads. Otherwise, a customer has to say, okay, now what else do I have to bring into my environment in order to cover that, even if it's a small percentage of my overall environment? Yeah. And in a weird way, that served the company well because they were able to come in and kind of create a little wedge or a splinter. Like if the, usually the answer is, and Curtis, you know, I think you will firmly agree with this. If backup vendor A wants to displace backup vendor B, then, you know, sales guy Dave comes to Curtis and says, Curtis, what are your requirements? And you give me a list of probably a hundred things, literally. And you say, you can do all of these. 
then we'll talk kid. Right. So then maybe I come back, you know, whatever, after a period of time and I say, good news, Curtis, I've, I can do 93 of a hundred. I've got a workaround for four of these, a roadmap for one, and still kind of checking out the last one. Right. And you'll great, but I have 102 requirements <laughs> right, now. Right, right. And we're not talking until you can do all of this. That's a very different mindset to, hey, Prasanna, you love everything about your house, but you want me to remodel the kitchen. And you're right. There's just this one and you're willing to say, okay, from a backup perspective, just take this workload where I experience pain and I'll let somebody else handle all the rest. Now you're in a very different conversation and you can land and expand. Especially that pain part, right? If there, if the existing solution doesn't work for that particular use case that you have a lot of pain around, of course, you're going to look for something and an opportunity for another vendor to come in and say, yes, I do this really, really well. And I can solve this one problem. Yeah. Now let's turn this around though, Curtis, I would say, but what should someone in the data center do? The biggest problem I see for how people evaluate backup products is they're not often very clear in their own minds exactly what the priorities are. Meaning it's like what we just talked about. Hey, if you can do a hundred, no, 102 top priority things, then we'll talk. But there's, that's not really often the case. That's not very realistic. So if, people could get clear, then they could make better decisions probably. Yeah. I, I when I think, I think back to, I, I, I worked with a lot of companies to help them, <clears throat> to help them pick backup products. And I can think of literally one that in my 20 years of doing that, I can think of literally one company that had their, um, their requirements well-defined. <laughs> Right. They had this list of like, these are the must haves. These are the, um, you know, the, the nice to haves. Uh, and then these are the ones that we don't really care about. And, and they had, and they had reasonings behind each and every one of mm. those requirements. And, and I remember that. Um, and I remember one of the vendors that came in, <laughs> came in and they basically, what the requirement was, we need 90 day. One of the requirements was we need 90 days of user browsable snapshots. It was a storage uh, project. One vendor came in and said, uh, that was a dumb idea. Uh, and that vendor was just basically shown the door. I, I love it when a, when a customer has well-defined uh, requirements and that those requirements come from real things, not just, I read it in a magazine or I read it on Curtis's <laughs> blog that we need to have XYZ. Um, or my lo- current yeah. product supports this and just go through the checklist and say, your new product has to support these exact same features. Right. Right. <sighs> so, uh, by the way, one thing I want to come back to, you mentioned earlier about AIX and Solaris. And I was unaware that you had anything to do with, you know, you beating Veeam that had anything to do with AIX and right. Solaris. Yeah. So, you know, in addition to now a lot of agent deployments on physical Windows, physical Linux. Uh, just prior to me coming in, Veeam had purchased a, a copy of the code from Christie for to use as a basis for Unix agents and ultimately decided to rewrite that on Veeam's own agent technology, meaning the Linux technology. So we rebased both AIX and Solaris. There's not an HPUX server. I don't anticipate an i-series, although to your point on agents, never say never. Right. But, you know, and there are even ways I could, I've figured out how we could support iSeries, but it would be really, really odd. 
you know, you have to go through a bridge conversion device and blah, blah, blah. Right. But to your initial point, a lot of people still think of, you know, Veeam as VMware. And it's like, well, no, there's AHV and Hyper-V. There's physical Windows, physical Linux. There's this Linux or Unix agents. Right. There's these cloud capabilities. We just acquired a containers company. What, what, who's the containers company? Kasten, that I right? A... Oh, they acquired yeah, Kasten. Kasten. Right, right, right. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, uh, the... And you also had, uh, there's a, <clears throat> speaking of, you know, this, you, you, you alluded to this perception of Russian ownership. There was this, I don't know if I'll call it a kerfuffle, uh, the, the snafu regarding N2WS, um, where you had, you acquired a company and then it, it apparently this perception created some challenges. So you got rid of the company and now you've come out with your own product. Yeah. And, you know, ironically, that turned out to be a very positive thing because if you go and acquire something, then you have to worry about integrating it with the rest of the portfolio. Mm -hmm. And the internal group that was already working at Veeam was, had some prototypes of their own. They were already actively working on things. And that was being written to be integratable with the rest of the Veeam portfolio right from the beginning. So in, in an interesting way, while it delayed some getting some things to market, ultimately what got to market was a better, better for the customer product and, and better integrated with the rest of the portfolio if you, you know, wanted to take advantage of sharing the data across. Interesting. It's almost as if it, uh, the N2WS kind of filled a gap, if you will, while you were able to sort of build this more integrated offering internally and get that out the door. Yeah, that wasn't the game plan, but that was the <laughs> sort of the happy accident, right? So, you know, there's an old phrase that pays to be good, it pays to be lucky, and it's really good if you can be good and lucky. Yeah. So uh, I see, you know, where you work and where we work are as two very different approaches, right? So we're cloud-centric. You're more, uh, you're not you're not cloud, you're not anti-cloud, but you're more data center-centric. Would that be uh, a fair well, assessment? I think it's fair up until about 2018. So right around when I joined, then the notion of, okay, th that data center modernization activity, Veeam did well. But even though revenue still going upwards, you've got to look for what's the next kind of wave. And very clearly, that was cloud. So in Veeam parlance, you know, we talk about that as Act 1 was a traditional data center, even though it was being modernized. And then Act 2 is more born in the cloud or sometimes lift and shift or SaaS, increasingly looking like containers. So a lot more investment there. So the, in the last 12 months, I think it's we've had six releases of three different cloud products. Oh, wow. So there's a <laughs> lot of activity, quick ramping of the various types of cloud uh, providers, hyperscalers, basically, as well as SaaS, and now increasingly containers, which the containers aspect is very different because now you're talking to the DevOps teams, right. typically. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how containers and Kubernetes reshape the world of backup and whether, A, whether or not it happens at all, right? Uh, it, it certainly has taken off, right? Uh, it'll be interesting. I'm still in the wait and see of whether or not it's going to have the level of impact that server virtualization had on IT, because that just turned, you know, IT on its head, right? Um, and and absolutely yes. broke backups. It, it it broke backups for for a period of time. Uh, th yes. th there were 
backups was <laughs> and virtualization did not get along. Um, no, yeah. can I tell you a quick sure. story on that? Um, I, I want to think it was 2006 at the latest 2007. And I began to realize back when I was a Gartner analyst that Tuesdays through Thursdays, or maybe even through Friday, all of a sudden there, there's tons of requests coming in to talk to the backup analyst. And the stories almost played out the same, which is I came into work on Monday and found out all of this stuff had happened. Like, what do you mean we have virtual machines in production? I found out because it failed and people wanted to know where the backup was. And I didn't even know that we had done that, much less put production workload in there. Or the slight variant on the story, but similar kind of ending was, I came in Monday and I got this email from someone who I barely knew called server admin who said, we've been running VMware for a while now. I've been backing this up. I shouldn't be doing this anymore. Well, now we're at 300 VMs. I think this should be your problem. Right. <laughs> like, what do you mean we have 300 VMs? And this is definitely this is definitely following that same path. By the way, that, that's just the path of IT. No one, no one, yeah. Yeah. no one designs a new project and puts how that project will be backed up on the table, right? They're, they're too busy doing the thing, the cool thing, the new database, the new app, the new whatever. Um, I, you know, it, this goes all the way back to to 20 years ago when uh, my com- my company at the time rolled in a an HP T500, I believe was the, and it was a huge server. It was a hundred gigabytes. It was huge, <laughs> right? And we rolled in this, this HP T500 and in that HP T500, it had one DDS2 tape drive, right? And I remember, I remember yeah. saying to the boss, so who's going to swap tapes 25 times a night to get the one, one backup done of this server? No one, no one included backup as part of that design, right? They're just, oh, beautiful new server, rolled it in. Uh, so, so that prop, that part has continued to, to be the case. So what, what do you think? So you've added, you've added virtual machines. And by the way, let me just go back to that, um, so I guess uh, even though I know that you're adding <clears throat> cloud products, right? Uh, it it does still seem that you're you're when you back up when when Veeam backs up the cloud, it still seems like they want to bring it to that Veeam physical server that's running somewhere. Do you think that's do you think that's changed? Yeah. Is that a misperception? I would say it is a misperception. You, I mean, you absolutely could because we're writing in a common and portable data format. So there are good reasons to do that. Like if we had a three-person company and we were using Microsoft 365, we might have previously been using Exchange on-prem. Mm-hmm. But the beautiful thing about that platform is you can actually do something with that SaaS data. You know, you have SharePoint, you have Exchange, you have you know, other capabilities in there, like OneDrive, et cetera. So if you want to bring it back, you absolutely could. The, like, the, well, I'll just stick on O365. So according to one analyst, Veeam has the most deployed O365 backup solution. 23% of those customers, that's their only spend with Veeam. Hmm. They, they run XYZ on-prem, but they were looking for a SaaS-based app so they utilized Veeam. They, if they rolled out the rest of Veeam, they could bring that data back in on-prem meaning. Right. 
but they don't have to. And then you could replicate that to Kasten, to AWS, Azure, GCP, what have you. So the 365 solution, backing up 365, it's it's a SaaS app itself or it's, is that what you meant by it? It can be. Well, it, it just doesn't have to come back to doesn't have to come back to on-prem data center. It doesn't have to come back to on-prem. You you could go deploy it and write it out to object storage of your choosing, or you could go to a managed service provider. Veeam has tens of thousands of service provider partners. So much like you know, it's a never say never thing. Just like the agents. Well, I can't imagine it, but never say never that Veeam doesn't have its own end-to-end turnkey SaaS capabilities. But right now, partnership seems to be the, the better route, and that's working well. Yeah, and actually, I was going to ask you a question. I know that Veeam, like you said, is very big with their MSPs who can offer these services, right? Um, do you see a lot of customers going that route in terms, or and is it mainly for things like Microsoft 365, the SaaS applications? I know that you also do a lot with offering DR capabilities from these MSPs. Yeah. yeah, you know, thank you. I'm glad you said DR. Because, and I'm also glad at this moment there's a pandemic because one of my colleagues, she's our DR advocate, and she was able to reach out and smack me. She probably would to say, you talked all this about the Veeam products and you never mentioned the disaster recovery orchestration product. So I got that in. Thank you for saving me there, Persona. But yeah, absolutely. You know, you the, one of the reasons why that becomes interesting is Veeam is, I think, unique because the exact same ISO or code can be delivered down and up the stack, meaning there are a lot of Veeam, and there's 400,000 Veeam customers. There's about 300,000 of them that are mid-size enterprise to really small enterprise. And there's around 70,000 that are large enterprise. But with the exact same code that I run on my Lenovo laptop, the exact same code that a bank with one instance of Veeam is protecting 20,000 machines and eight petabytes of data. And so horizontally scaling out the software is why that works. But where I the reason I mentioned that is that now you get a whole range of service providers. I mean, there are literally some that, hey, they're in Australia and they cater to the dental office community or the, you know, the small business legal community. And there's only a couple machines in there. Or there's someone that's a much larger, maybe even a Fortune 500 company that says, well, we don't like backup as much as Prasanna and Curtis and Dave do. We, we want to bend this it. whole service out, outsource it completely. So let's talk about the, the DR piece. What, um, your, your, I'm glad your friend will be happy. Uh, what, <laughs> what, is that, what does that look <laughs> like, uh, the DR orchestration piece? Yeah, so it, it initially took Veeam's replication or replicas and orchestrated that for recovery. Then it added in the ability to take Veeam backups because not everybody, especially when you're talking smaller shops, not everyone's going to be doing replication, but hopefully they're doing backups. So the next iteration of that added the ability to leverage Veeam backups and automatically restore. Then the third version had really could run it without Veeam. It was NetApp centric, go instrument the NetApp snapshots and replication engine and then now our CDP capability just got updated with that. But what the, the engine does is it's essentially a workflow designer. You, you can stitch how you want the workflow to be organized, and it will automatically create the resulting commands for you and the runbook mm-hmm. 
and it'll keep that runbook up to date. And it'll automatically test it for you too. Test it meaning, can I go complete this drill in the service times allowed as measured by recovery time, recovery point objectives? Because as we know, the biggest problem with all this is unfortunately testing is a bit of a dying art. So if you can automate that, that would be very helpful is the belief. Yeah, I, I'm a huge fan of the of automated testing. And 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 I, actually, I, I will give Veeam credit to being the first vendor that I remember having automated testing. Uh, some other vendors have added it, uh, and, and Druva has it as well. Uh, but it's, what I'm curious about is, so you have this auto, automa uh, automation sort of workflow. Um, what does a typical recovery look like? Does it? How long does a recovery take? Can you can you tweak that? Like how you know what does that look like? Yeah, so you can you know tweak that. So for example, let's say it quote unquote is successful, but you would like it to be even faster, or you want it. You have a new SLA. In other words, is what you're really saying, right? A tighter SLA. So now immediately you you say, oh well, maybe I need different infrastructure. Maybe that's more networking, or you know, maybe there's some other component here that whatever's the bottleneck, in other words, will be the way that you can speed up, you know, your restoration. Or maybe, you know, it's it's finally time. I've been putting off thanks to the pandemic. You know, the server refresh really didn't happen. So I've now outgrown the infrastructure that I have. You know, I've in other words, I put more workload on there. I didn't stop application deployment. I stopped purchasing new gear. <laughs> and eventually, you know, maybe that's what led to the problem. And G but I don't want to just say that Veeam only does that if you buy this dis Veeam disaster recovery orchestration solution. Things like you were mentioning, Curtis, sure backup or being able to verify the backup right after you take it and not just sort of can you mount and get heartbeat, but oh, this is this is a SQL backup. Let's go issue some SQL iterators or you know, commands across that to interrogate it. Sorry, Prasanna, I cut oh, you no, off. Oh, no, no. Right I was going to ask, um, do you see customers um, using Veeam and the DR capabilities as a stepping stone to get them to the cloud? I know some customers look at migration, yeah. and DR is yep. usually one way. Like, their data center fails, they have to do a DR, but hey, maybe I'm not going to go back on-premises. doesn't make sense for me to rebuild a data center. Yeah, no, absolutely. In fact, some of the service providers offer what they call MAS, Migration as a Service. And if you think about, I mean, the nature of what we do, our companies, right, they're in the data capture, data management business. And, you know, that's the hard part right there, meaning go get the data appropriately and store it. After you do that, you can think of lots of different use cases. Maybe you want to migrate from hypervisor A to hypervisor B, or to your point, on-prem to cloud or repatriate back for some reason. So now you can think of if, if you're really a data engine, you know, now the things that you can do with that become very interesting. And at some point, we'll see, I'm with you, Curtis, we'll see how it all plays out. But I can see a potential for DevOps and platform ops and leveraging data and data portability coming into play. But just because it's a good idea doesn't mean, you know, <laughs> it's going to happen rapidly or, you know, that it will happen in totality. Just don't forget backup is a primary reason. So, so I'm just saying the platform is intended for backing up and restoring your data. Yeah, like That's yeah, yeah. kind of the first reason to have the infrastructure. All these are kind right, of right. secondary right. use cases that you can use on top of it. <laughs> okay. So you're very insightful. Um, we just, Veeam just completed one of these surveys that I was talking about. And 
one of them has an end, I'm going to look it up, of 2,800 people across 28 countries. So pretty substantial. As, as far as we know, it's the largest backup survey ever done. Now, two years in a row, to your point, the number one reason people say they would switch backup solutions is to improve the reliability and success rate of backups. And if I channel my inner Curtis, I would say, you know, kids, it's hard to restore that of which you have not backed up. Your odds go up dramatically yes, if do. you back it yes, up. Yes, they do. That which that which has not been backed up cannot be restored. That is very true. Um, so, no matter how much code we write. Yeah, exactly. It's not a software problem. Um, Dave, I, I want to ask you what could be an uncomfortable question. I don't know if it is or not. Um, I, I know I've never, and, and I don't want this to come, come across as like, you know, I work for a company and you work for a company. Um, because I remember having a similar conversation four years ago before I ever came to Druva. And that is one of my concerns about Veeam is, uh, and and I have the same concern, you know, they're not the only Windows, <laughs> they're not the only product that only runs on Windows, right? Um, and, and I know that you're, you have media servers that or Linux, right? But but your your core product still runs on Windows. Um, you know, we, we live in this world where like it's ransomware. Like every other day, it seems like there's a ransomware attack, and it's and although I, I'm a Mac guy, and I, I'm under no illusion that like Mac is like a perfect OS or Linux is a perfect OS, but I think we can agree that Windows is the primary attack point for all these ransomware. Most of these ransomware attacks. Does that give you pause, right? Is that something that that Veeam is trying to address? I know that they've added some features. I've, I, I, you know, I, I'm well aware of the like the the um, the writing to object lock in S3. I, I think that was a, a great mm -hmm. ad, right? What about just this core issue of you know running on Windows? When when I look at Veeam, I know there are. Um, there are ways to better configure it for security. Um, so, for example, you like I I I ask people when they're configuring Windows-based backup systems to to not do just an NFS mount to a data domain. Right? There are proprietary ways to connect Veeam and data domain. Right? Um, I've, what's the product? Do you know the Boost. product name for that? Is it Boost? Okay. DD Boost. Yeah, DD Boost. Um, and, and I, I like the, the Linux, you know, approach as well. What, what I'll stop talking. What, what, what do you think about this whole thing? I think you're correct. I mean, the ubiquity of that operating system, meaning windows mm -hmm. is such that it's an attractive attack point. Unfortunately, you know, people don't limit themselves to that, but it is an attractive attack point. So now from a Veeam perspective, you kind of alluded to some of the best recommendations regardless, but let's still say, you know, you've got a Windows app mm -hmm. and we're happy to be talking about Veeam at this point. But a lot of it comes back to good hygiene, like separation of passwords. And to your point, Curtis, about scope, well, does this have to be on the same domain as production? It shouldn't be really. Right. Do you want to have the same password? No, you don't. So there, there are sort of best practices that go into play regardless of a backup system being involved and regardless of what app it might be. And then by the time you get to Veeam, we've been working on now offering choice. So we we have what we call proxies. They're essentially data movers. That's when that's how you can take the same piece of code and 
scale it out. You horizontally scale out more data ingest. And then you know, we can now put those on Linux as well as Windows. Right. We can have the repository or where we write the data be on Linux as well. And you can start to see you know, the roadmap if you kind of say, okay, well, if they've been doing that, then the only thing left is the main Veeam backup server itself. So you can envision a time when that can probably come to completion. So if you want, like I remember when I was at IBM, someone would say, I, we're not betting our business on billy boxes, meaning Bill Gates operating machines. Well, thanks. I'm glad you explained what billy boxes were because I, I didn't yeah. know. Well, I didn't understand it either, but apparently uh, this automobile, that's how they, they spoke. But, you know, real men coded in Unix at that time, right? So there was concerns or you mentioned, you know, you might have been referring to Commvault as the other one I know that's yeah. fairly Windows centric as well. But there are ways around that for not just Veeam, but for Commvault as well. Some of that involves best practices, although maybe you're just of, of an opinion. Look, I, from a security perspective, we don't want to do that at all. Well, we will increasingly have more and more of an answer for you, uh, meaning porting more and more components over into Linux counterparts. And then part of what we did, you mentioned the S3 object lock for immutable uh, storage. Well, we did something, we're trying to think of how can we do that on-prem? I mean, you could do that with object storage, obviously, but what if your first backup behind a Veeam Windows backup server wasn't you know, going to object storage or wasn't going to the cloud where you could leverage S3 object lock, or maybe it wasn't going directly to tape and you had that air gap capability. So we came out with a hardened Linux repository. Then the trick became, well, if, if you're very used to the Windows environment, but you want to take advantage of that capability, how can you kind of wizard drive that install to where a you know sort of Microsoft certified engineer doesn't have to become a Linux expert overnight just to try to get safe first backups? Yeah, that was the one, the one when I when I've talked to other people, that was the one pushback that I got from some the Windows-based backup, you know, I'm putting Veeam and Commvault in the same category here. Is well, I don't, I don't know anything about Linux, right? I, I, I like what you, I like what you tell me about a Linux media server, but or you're calling a proxy, but uh, I, I don't, I don't want to have to administer a Linux box. Um, yeah, I, I, I wonder, I wonder how you overcome that objection in a in a very Windows-centric shop, right? Um, that, but um, that that'll be a challenge. Yeah, I think yeah. it's it's about choice. Yeah, no, you know, right. and it's about recommending best practices too. You know, that same individual like Rick Vanover that you mentioned yeah. that you spoke with at VMworld, you know, he publishes a series of papers, and I, I feel like over half the content could be, you know, you could be talking about any application. Right. It's just about what's the proper way to install, close. It's basically hardening the system. I do applaud Rick for for that. I I, I still remember seeing his first uh, talk at Vimon, where he was bringing attention to the risk of ransomware and the fact that you really don't want to just have a Windows backup server, C colon backslash backups as your backup target. You know, as the local did, like don't do that. And here's why. And I applauded him for that because right. the, you have a <clears throat> you have a bit of a challenge with like you you remember did you ever see the movie Tucker? Oh, yeah. yeah. So you know yeah, how that yeah. how that the the, the car industry, the automobile industry, didn't want seatbelts because it implied that vehicles were unsafe, right? Um, and so you you have you have that challenge. So I'm glad to hear that you're not you're not trying to hide that issue and you're pointing it out to customers. It would be interesting to see the degree to which you do that. 
Like if, if a customer configures the product unsafely or what you're considering not in best practices, if you like warn them some way or, or, you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah. So, I mean, there is a companion reporting and analytics tool called Veeam One. It's called One because it used to actually be three little products back in the day. <laughs> so they united it into one. But it's one of the things that it can do is look for health checks. And it's not exactly specific to this context, but we can feed out signature files of high frequency support cases. And it's not instead of call home, it's it's almost like pushing out a virus definition where these signature cases, what we call intelligent diagnostics of common configuration problems, even just with the rest of the infrastructure, like bad microcode levels or something like that, we can expose. So we've been thinking about are there other ways to try to guide people to do really that which they should have been doing all along. But given the complexity of the environment and obviously challenging times, best practices are oftentimes skipped. At least having a mechanism in place where you can constantly update that because the best practices are going to change over time. And how often does someone read the installation guide, install it the first time, and for like the fifth time they go deploy it, they're reading the guide again, right? They're like, ah, this is good enough. I'll just go ahead and deploy it because I kind of remember the steps. So having sort of that check and balance is good. I remember when the best practice was keep that Windows out of my data center. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah well in the mainframe world it was even easier yeah yeah absolutely. don't trust a computer you can carry oh, <laughs> oh i like that i like that anyway we yeah well listen dave you and i could talk uh about backups for a long time and uh i, I thanks for coming on i i don't know if it's if yeah, you perceived it to be a potential you know concern you know given that we work for that other company but um i do i do appreciate you coming on it was great to be here with the exception of now I understand it's audio only, no reason to have shaved or showered. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, that's kind of a, a kicker, but, you know, the rest of it was great. Yeah. Uh, and Prasanna, uh, thanks again for your, for your insight. Oh, thank you, Curtis. Thanks, Dave. It's a pleasure having you on the show. <laughs> yeah, great to be here. I'm really a big fan of your pod. I, I truly mean that. It's great stuff. Keep it up, please. Thank you. I'm getting little. I'm getting little tears in my eyes. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, because when we started, I was like, I just want to make a podcast that Dave would be proud of. All right, so, <laughs> um, so thanks, thanks to the listeners. We would be nothing without you. And remember to subscribe so that you can restore it all. system isn't worth a spit. Finally, I needed your backup. You had a chance to fix it. Instead, it's all jacked up. See how I'll write on Facebook about you. Don't underestimate the things that I will do. There was a file, but I deleted it. Too bad your backup system isn't worth a spit.
Yeah. 